0: This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure, just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective founding partner, Freddie Laker. Hey, everyone! Welcome to another week of O Ship. This week, I've got Scott Tannen, the founder and CEO of Boland Branch, on the show. Uh, Scott is a really, really lovely guy that I met in the mid-2000s when he was the Global Director of Interactive for Wrigley's. And we were at iKinoin, my old agency, that Wrigley's was a client, uh, and so I got a chance, chance to you know, interact with him then, no pun intended. Uh, so he then went on to found a company called Funk Tank, which had this incredible gaming website called Candy Stand that he founded with my friend James Baker uh, from the agency WDDG, and he went on to sell that to Publisher Clearinghouse. So needless to say, I was pretty surprised when Scott uh, founded Boll & Branch, which seemed pretty different from the kind of stuff that I've known him for. So if you don't know what Bowl & Branch is, uh, they're a luxury goods uh, business basically rooted in ethically made, sustainably sourced um, materials, things like bed sheets and duvets. And worth noting, I'm also a customer and happen to be able to personally vouch for how awesome their stuff is. But anyway, the reason I wanted to have Scott on today is he is uh, very passionate about building sustainable businesses now this can be taken in a very literal sense from things like his from his business bowl and branch where they're the largest consumer of fair trade certified organic cotton in the world or the fact that he supports thousands of textile workers around the world mandating fair wages and business practices but it also could be applied to the fact that Scott's very passionate about building sustainable companies. And what I mean in this case about a sustainable company is a company that outlasts you. And I think, you know, without getting too much in the weeds of it, I think trying to build a business that is is bigger than the founder or the founders and can you know be bigger than, uh, you know, keep running even if they weren't part of the business is actually a really hard thing to do. So with all that, here we go with another week of our ship we're going to dig into Scott's big brain and big vision and hopefully get some great lessons for all of you. Scott, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you
1: so much, Freddie. It is great to see your shining face. It's been a long time.
0: <laughs> Literally, sh- It's more of a shining head than a shining face these days. But, you know, you first knew when I still had that great hair I'd kill for today.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we both have a few greys. Um, listen, you know, time doesn't stop. But uh, But no, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Our pleasure. So look, uh, Scott, I I did my best to give you you kind of a fair description uh, in the intro of the show. You've done a a lot of really cool things, uh, but I'd love to jump in very specifically around Bowl and Branch. You know, I mentioned that it kind of surprised me because I thought of you more like gaming and all this cool interactive stuff. And then here you come out with this kind of very real product. And so can you tell us a little bit like, I I want to hear like real origin story stuff, like first, like from the first thought, to how you kind of brought a business like this uh, to life.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because I have such distinct parts of my life, right? I have the CPG part of my life um, where I first met you and then obviously knew you through the gaming uh, and the fun tank part of my life. And and here I am at Bowlin Branch. And, you know, now eight and a half years since we've launched and, and really been working on this close to a decade at this point. Wow. It's such a part of my identity. And and so so very few people know anything about where I came from and how ridiculous it is that I would risk my entire family's well-being on <laughs> home textiles. Um, but, but you know I mean, the tr- truth of the matter and it, it does go back a little bit to, to, to Funtank you know Funtank was a great experience for me and that it was my first startup who's, who's built a lot of companies. you know the benefit of your first company is you make a ton of mistakes you know, and, and you get a few things, right. And if you're honest with yourself, at some point you, you can, you can start to identify, okay, these are the mistakes I made. These are the things I did right. How do I do more of the right things and less of the dumb things. And, and so, you know, but I, what I missed in my days at funtech as much as I loved gaming was I missed the idea of a physical product. I loved the, you know, the notion of working on Oreo cookies and on a promotion, right. And then seeing it on an end cap display when I walked through the grocery store. And so I, I had this in my head after, after selling fun tank and, and I mean, not to get too personal, but I know, I know there, there's been things in your life that that have, have molded where you end up. And in my life within a month of selling fun tank, which is, you know, this great personal achievement, you, you build a business that's worth something to somebody else. Um, my mom gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, right? Rough kind of situation of extremes in your life. And, and so, and you very quickly realize, or, or you maybe you always realize, but you, it's reinforced to you, you know, the things that are important mm. to you. And, and so at that point, I realized I didn't want to stay with Publishers Clearinghouse. Mm. You know, it's not a business of sort of sweepstakes and promotions and things that without a physical product that I had much passion for. Um, so I worked with them to set up a long range plan for Fun Tank. It's still been a great acquisition for them. And they were incredibly graceful gracious in in letting me sort of go and do my own thing and take care of my mom and, and all of those things. But you, you know, so I, I came back to the fact and I said, well, gosh, you know, what I learned at fun tank was that, uh, online games, casual games, mobile games is really just a, it's just customer acquisition arbitrage. That's all it is, right. It's scaling penny profits into a business. Mm-hmm. So what if I could think about this sort of idea of physical goods where, you know, it, the margins may not be quite as good as a technology product, but the total dollars you're, you're playing with are significant. And, you know, knowing that my competitors in the gaming space were hiring economists out of Columbia and places like that, you know, and I had partners like James Baker, who, you know, is smartest on his worst day than, than I am on my best, that I was like, this could be easy, right? You know, Macy's is big and, and you know, they, they're sophisticated, but they may not be as scrappy. And so what if mm. I could create a ba- brand in any space and a product that I can sell? Right. I think I'm pretty good at branding. I'm good at marketing. You know, I've got lots of friends that can make cool logos. Like, let's just private label something and scale a business. So I had a ton of business ideas within my delusion uh, that, that I was within pursuing. <laughs> like, it is amazing. It is amazing when you talk to yourself a lot. How much you can convince yourself of your potential greatness, and and so, you know, what was really really funny about to to cut a long story short, law of simultaneous invention, right? At the same time, you've got folks like Warby Parker and Bonobos and saying going into market and saying we're gonna we're gonna basically wholesale our product to a customer and we're gonna get really good at customer acquisition arbitrage. Um, I thought I was the only one thinking the same thing, and you know, Casper, a lot of brands like that. At some point during this process, uh, we were redoing our own master bedroom. And I wasn't, I was consulting, but I wasn't really working. And I was really just trying to explore for ideas. And Missy, (laughs) Missy came home one day and she was like, oh, I'm having the hardest time picking out sheets. I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, you know, um, I I, like went to Bloomingdale's. They were like $400 a set. Then I went to Macy's. And then I went to bed, bathed me on I don't know the difference. And like, I was like, oh my gosh, like we have officially, you know, they call high class problems. Like this isn't another world. And so I was like, okay, hon, why don't you go to bed and let let's got jump on the Google machine. And I'm going to figure this out in 10 minutes and then go back to my merry way of playing PlayStation in the basement with nobody bothering <laughs> me. And I just remember this article coming up uh, in that, that very same night. And it was like, So of course, what do I Google? I'm like, well, what makes the best thread count sheets or whatever? Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. And the first article was a New York Times article from five years earlier that explained why thread count has nothing to do with the quality of sheets. And I was like, you've gotta be kidding me. Like to me, obviously I was like deep in the zone at that point of thinking like this world of
0: sheets is is
1: like, that's all anyone's thinking about. No, um, I didn't
0: know that. And you just destroyed all, I was like, yeah, this is easy. just get on here and you put the old thread count thing up as high as it would go and Buckle boom, up, Freddie, because the, so, the next yeah. hour,
1: I'm gonna blow your mind. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, look, it, when you really think about it and you look at the definition, it's simple, right? Thread count is purely a measure of the number of threads per square inch. Good. So, high quality threads feel different than low quality threads, right? So Even what if we, they're packed in there. Saw, Yeah, what we saw is the marketplace for years had figured out that we as American consumers we like big numbers. So, big high thread count sheets must be better, right? right. Thousand thread count. I can, I can, you we're know, simple walk. animals. Scott, yeah. don't hate. We are, you know, what we're simple <laughs> animals, and and and. Day by day, Freddie. I'm trying to make us sophisticated through the eyes of bed sheets. But you know, it just it just occurred to me at that point. It was like, wow, here's something that everybody knows about a category. There's really no brand in the category, so to speak, and the entire space is built on one myth. And as I dug deeper and deeper, all in one night, I, I said to Missy in the morning, "I'm like, we need to start a bed." Or I actually at the time it was, I need to start a bed sheets company, and she's like, "Okay, honey." You know, like, and, and she saw that as an like, end. like. No, I'm gonna
0: go finish kicking ass in God of War. And then yeah, we'll come she, back she and did. She that. honestly
1: saw my getting excited about an idea as a means to the end of getting me off the couch during the day because that's my natural state. Is is yours? I know. Don't don't you know hide behind your your farm in North Carolina. But so so. I just started the process. so the, again, I came back to the fact that, like, okay, we're gonna make the buying process really simple. We're gonna make this transparent or as I thought transparent was. and And so the first thing I did was called exactly who everybody else calls, all these big importers in new york city and in the middle of New Jersey, and I started making meetings like, and you know me, I get shot out of a can. When I get an idea, it's just like, oh. Uh, extremely yeah. directive. So the next thing I know In I'm the clinical world,
0: med- we call this obsessive compulsive disorder. Yes,
1: that's true. <laughs> um I, and I am diagnosed but unmedicated. Perfect. You medicated with bull and branch, it sounds like <laughs> it's the secret, right? Like just have a lot of <laughs> a lot of differences to yourself and then just 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 own it. <laughs> I digress. So the, and this is a funny part of the story. So um, I, I have these meetings with a few different companies and, and a bunch of meetings. And I get down to the point where I'm going to start thinking about pricing. And I'm like, all right, can you give me the pricing? Like, I don't know, how do you price by the dozen? Like, what do you do? As I as I feel like I'm starting to learn a little bit about the product. And they're like, well, you've got to come up with, you've got to share us the designs. I'm like, designs? This is white fabric squares. Like, what do you mean designs? And they're like, no, there's hems and there's this. And I'm like, oh my God. So I said to Missy, I'm like, You're better with design than I am. And so can you come to this meeting? And I don't know if we need to tell them we're married, but can you just like show up and then make sure I don't do anything stupid? Uh, And she's like, no, I have this to do and I have that to do. And I knew that in uh, Paramus, New Jersey, near one of these importers, there was a Houston's restaurant. And when we went to Vanderbilt together, we always love to go to Houston's because we we like their spinach artichoke dip. And who doesn't? So I said, if you come to this meeting with me, I will take you to Houston's. And she's like, done. And th- that was the point where my third grade teacher wife suddenly became head of design for a textiles company. Um, so here... <laughs> Here, and you can imagine what, the, what like our family is thinking like missy's mom actually was hoping we failed because she wanted us to move into her basement so she could be around her grandkids more but everybody can else was like real
0: quick, scott I, yeah. I just i just think for anyone who doesn't know Bolin branch i want them to understand how how many units are you guys moving a year now to understand how big a company this has become and how crazy this story is in, yeah we're like a
1: couple hundred million dollar business now it's crazy <laughs>
0: Just amazing. Sorry. It's amazing. Please continue. Yeah, fail directly awesome. upwards.
1: That's my my advice. We can end the show right here. Just fail upwards. That's awesome. So, you know, but Missy, who you don't know as well as, as you know me, and I, I always like to say that that once I got through somehow her quality assurance process and she made that mistake, she has made a, she's bound and determined for that never to happen again in life. So she is such like a, a stickler for quality. But so she has been sort of maniacal about the design and and the two of us spent better part of a year learning everything we could about textiles. We're smart enough to know that we don't know a lot uh, in that space. and And so what we found and, and and I can give you, I don't want to keep running on, but I can give you a great story about how I, how I Thank sort of discovered it. the need for sustainability within the bedding category, but we just started, you know when you don't know anything,
0: you ask all the questions. Yeah, I was actually going to say, I feel like it's people that have imp- a little bit of it respectfully, like when you feel like you have a little bit of imposter syndrome, some people crumble into that. In my case, I feel like it constantly pushes me to be like, "Well, I have to learn everything because I don't want to look like an idiot," and so yeah. my obsessive compulsive disorder kicks in, and then like, and then I like immerse myself so much that people are like, "Oh, wow, okay," and then you don't, and they so through that because that almost like that freak out self yeah. uh, consciousness, you you get really knowledgeable really fast. When, what what's amazing is you start asking some really,
1: really stupidly obvious questions that defy the status quo and the sort of, you know, generally accepted unspoken spoken rules of the game in any category. And like people look at you like you have seven heads. You know, for me, I can remember that question being uh, I was at I was at one textile company, which actually supplies one of the other biggest uh, direct to consumer brands. So I'm not going to share who it is just because I, I don't want that kind of fight. But uh, if you push me, I will. You know, they're like, oh, our, our, we, we make our products from Egyptian cotton. I'm like, Egypt. Oh, my gosh. All right. My my accountant already told me, like, I can write off travel expenses and things like that. And I am dying to see the pyramids. And I want to prove, like, was the Sphinx built by aliens? Uh, and, and prior, you know, <laughs> like, I can question. go deep. In addition, in did, so, like, what am I thinking? Like, Egyptian cotton, there's this guy with a straw hat and the banks of the Nile River with his hoe. Oh, yeah. and. And, you know, like this fertile, this fertile soil that Cleopatra <laughs> herself walked across. Like I'm, I'm getting all fired up and and I'm like, great. Well, like, I'd love to go see the farms. Can we make this happen? And they, they look at me like the farms, who wants to go to the cotton farm? I'm like, no, no, no. I want to I see it want to like, I'm trying to learn about this category and i got to understand the entire supply chain. They're like, well, we don't have any relationship. We buy the cotton at the market. I'm Like, oh, okay. And, and. You know, they're like, our products are made in Italy. And to make a long story short, I get in touch with the factory in Italy after talking to the sales office in Manhattan. And they're like, um, no, our our products are are made here. To make a very long story short. No
0: one one actually, they're all BS. No one actually knew where any of this stuff came from, basically. You think you're learning for these people. They don't know anything.
1: What they're doing. And and this, this manufacturer is selling some of the highest end from a price standpoint, luxury betting in the world, they are affixing a label that says made in Italy and Italy. That's it. The products are actually made in China. And the cotton farm that's growing Egyptian cotton is on the grounds of this factory in China, where the labor standards are horrific. And it, like, again, it's I'm hard. like, you know, thread count was one thing. I'm like, everywhere I turn in this category, it is like, how, how much can we, can we take advantage of the fact that while it's a category that everybody participates in, nobody knows anything about it. And it literally takes Missy and I, who also know nothing about it, but are, are, are just asking questions. We went from, from a period of like, how do we figure out how to make this product to being like, how do we figure out what the hell's going on here? Um, and and that was almost a bigger, I wasn't sure, honestly, Freddie, was I writing a book or or was
0: I starting a business here? Because because it, because it just felt like such a revelate. You're like this whole a huge chunks of the industry felt like it was basically, I don't yeah. use like using the word of fraud, but uh, not not real. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's certainly you know I, I I mean there were a lot
1: of fraudulent aspects of it, or or at best it was pretty darn opaque. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people. What what kept getting me I was like there are a lot of people playing in this category from consumers to makers to brands to manufacturers to whatnot. And nobody seems to be asking these questions, why? Right? Nobody seems to be cracking trying to figure it out, why? And that either would make us, okay, we might be onto something here. Because if, if given the knowledge, right, when, when you walk into a marketplace and you say, nobody's an educated consumer, then people are going to make whatever seems to be the simplest decision. But we started to come up with a standpoint of what if we can actually completely reinvent how this product is made? If we can then create a, a base of educated consumers... We have the opportunity to become the default choice in this category, and so it's not often that you look at an opportunity and say,
0: "Holy cow, this is big! This is really, yeah. really big!" And the, 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 there's some very big bulls being presented here for me to come in and be like, "We've never really done any of this before, but we think this is rubbish, so we're just gonna we're just gonna fix it." You guys don't mind, do you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, well, what was funny is right. You talk to,
1: you know, a, again, like everybody knows people like one, two, three, uh, three uh, steps of Kevin Bacon away from like a different category. Right. So it's like, Oh, you're thinking about textiles. Like Scott, you should talk to this person. They've been in the, and they're Like, first thing you're like, you're talking about organic cotton, Scott. We tried that in 2008. Consumers didn't want it. Nobody's nobody wants organic cotton. Like, why would you make it so hard on yourself? Right. And like, you get a lot of that, like dismissive stuff. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, like really? Cause because again, it all I am at that point is a is a is a highly motivated consumer, right? I'm not I'm no longer searching the market for what I want to buy because I'm pretty much convinced it's not there. So, you know, at this point, I, I think I need to go out and
0: make it. Wow. Yeah, really quickly, uh, Scott, I want to just highlight this comment from uh, Rasha Alamar, who says, I'm so happy you're mentioning this. There's so much misinformation and greenwashing using keywords that sound good, but the reality is it, it very different, so very wise. Uh, Rasha, thanks for uh, commenting. Um, Just anyone who's in chat, whether uh, you're tuned in through YouTube or LinkedIn or Facebook or any other, other platforms we use, uh, feel free to you know ask questions and we'll do our best to address them. Uh, but thank you again uh, for, for watching. Back to where you were. So yeah, t- t- tell me- I don't me remember how, where I was. Like, you know, how do we, at this point, you know, you're, you're now making a transition to basically- ethically sourcing uh your materials your uh you know i, I we talked earlier about like the fair trade cotton like so i think mm-hmm. you know how, how does this whole part start because it it sounds like you're just thinking about it but this is a pretty big jump from what you yeah. you know you've learned about it, and it's not something you've done historically so i I'd, I'd love to see how this evolves it started with us right like okay if you're starting from scratch and i think this
1: is the you know i don't know if you call it the entrepreneur's dilemma or whatever it is but Anything that a true entrepreneur is doing, and and again, Freddie, I don't think there's anybody better than you that understands this. You know, a big part of what you're trying to do is you you look out at opportunity and you say, I don't care how it's been done, this is how I think it needs to be done, right? And when you reach the point that you're replicating something else that exists, you abandon it because it it no longer sort of holds holds water. Missy and I were were realizing, okay, look, we have three daughters that are going to watch our every move, and and it sounds crazy to say that, but they're teenagers now, and their lives have been completely molded by being a part of of Bowl and Branch. And, and, and I think that's crazy. Makes perfect sense. Right. We want to feel really proud of the decisions we make, and more importantly, once you learn something and know something, if you ignore it, you're just an asshole. You know, like that's the truth. Right. Like if, if you start understanding that the 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 life expectancy of a of a cotton farmer, conventional cotton farmer in India, is like thirty five. In an organic cotton farmer's life expectancy is significantly higher. And you choose to go the route of sourcing conventional cotton. What are you? Like, who are you at that point? And and so at least to me for my values, and, and maybe it's the notion of act two as an entrepreneur, you're a little bit more thoughtful in terms of how you look at things. But we decided to just take this approach and realizing what we really want isn't out there. And, and so it was a collection of reading. I, I remember reading an article in The Guardian about a cotton cooperative in India called Chetna. And Chetna is was was started by an NGO called Solidaridad. And what they were doing is, is working in parts of India, for instance, Sandra Pradesh, where GMO seeds and genetically modified seeds are, are not legal. So um, they were helping rural communities find ways to generate cash and generate money and income so they were teaching them to farm cotton which could be a cash crop organically but also work as a community right so you're going to be in charge of the growing the food you're going to be we're going to be in the cotton we're going to share things and we're going to use this money in a community productive way so we're going to we're going to make sure we've got clean water supplies we're going to make sure we've got education because the goal of everybody in the world i i believe um if you have children and or even if you're just a member of society is is you want the next generation to do better than you did right because that's why we want to that's why we think about global warming that's why we think about you know challenges that are out there that the impact will probably come after we're long gone but you want to protect that and preserve that and present so anyway cutting cutting back to the the chase here there were some small brands as we discovered that were sort of playing in organic but the what we saw is they weren't really commercially viable and i, I still believe to this day there is not a consumer in the world that would prefer to sleep in a sustainable bed over a comfortable bed Mm -hmm. so we needed to kind of reinvent the way we looked at sustainability and i think like brands like patagonia in a different way do a really nice job of this but we had to go out and create the best quality products we could and the benefit was we discovered through chetna a grade and quality of cotton that when treated the way in organic cotton Products should be right if you if you start with an organic crop and then you you throw formaldehyde on it which by the way is thrown on most sheets awesome not awesome uh you know it's no longer organic right it's no longer healthy it's no longer those sorts of Mm -hmm. things you might be helping one group but not helping the other and so we wanted to make sure end to end what if we found every potential box we could check from a branding and marketing standpoint let's find every box we can possibly check to make the best product we can in the best way we can what would happen Is this even commercially viable? And what we found is by being able to architect our own supply chain, which took a lot of time, it starts with a cotton source, then you find a spinner, then you find a weaver, you find cut and sew, right? Keeping in mind, I never walked into any of these kinds of factories in my Mm -hmm. life. And like, I needed someone to tell me, oh, by the way, you know, yeah, great, congrats, you found a gin. How are you going to spin this into yarn? Oh, I guess I need a spinner. There must be a <laughs> Wikipedia page for that. Um, and so, <laughs> I'm facing a like, lot of Google
0: University here.
1: Yeah, for sure. Right, and 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 by the way, total aside. Like, I believe this should be open source. Anybody that wants to know how to do it, just call me. Right, yeah. I, like awesome. we're all better if we're if we're applying it in this way. So, what we ended up having is this really differentiated end end supply chain where & Branch was actually and & Branch at the time of our first. Order wasn't even bull and branch. It was just like we had no name. It was just really Scott and Missy and the hopes and fears of our friends and family uh, of what would happen to us when we tried this. But we ended up with this supply chain and then a cost of goods that actually put us in a competitive space because we think about middlemen between a factory and a customer, right? You the middleman is the, you know. It's the, uh, the person that sells into retail or importer or whatever it is. But what you had is a lot of hands in everybody's pockets at every step of the way. And so we found that we were at a tremendous cost of goods advantage. And we had brought fair trade. We're the first company to bring fair trade into a textiles process. We said, look, we don't know. And I remember talking to Paul Rice, who, who runs Fair Trade USA, like one of the most inspiring people you will ever meet, and saying, Paul, we need. How do we make sure that the the farmer is actually paid a fair wage? Like, let's forget about the commodity costs. How do we make sure our factory workers are paid fairly? Because when we get this to market, we talk about this highly revolutionary way to make a product where everybody, including the customer, who comes into contact is honored and wins, right? Like, we're not marginalizing the customer in terms of the message either. I want to make sure that that I that we actually can stand up for that. If I'm putting my name on this product and Missy's putting her name on this product, we have to believe that. So Fair Trade came in and audited every piece of it and continues to do so today to make sure that we're always aligned to keeping people above the living wage. Everybody that works on a Bull & Branch product lives above the living wage. And that drives very low turnover in our factories, highly satisfied workforce you know, a lot of social good that comes out of how they utilize that money. And, and 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 mm-hmm. you know, while at the same time, a really environmentally disruptive way to look at making a product. And then from a commercial standpoint, we make the best products embedding in the market at any price point. Um, mm-hmm. You wipe all the goodness that that comes with our supply chain off. It's still
0: the best product. bedding layer
1: these things on. It's just, you know, we like to say we're established different from day one. We've been very, very.
0: So I, want, I want to address a, a couple issues. Uh, so, uh, one, just kind of noting things about how your business is structured. So, the other day, I saw you uh, uh, mention that seventy-eight uh, percent of your employees are women, and that actually eighty-three percent of your women, or sorry, eighty-three percent of your leadership are women, which I think is a, a fantastic. So, I applaud you on that. You know, that's obviously one differentiator for your business. Now, and, and owning your own supply chain is is huge. And earlier, you mentioned Casper and some of the other uh, kind of you know direct-to-consumer brands uh, that are out there. Obviously, your experience with marketing consumer brands had a big impact on, on how you built this business. But I'd be I'd be keen to hear um, how you feel like your trajectory over the last couple of years is has uh, maybe changed or, or can be compared to some of those other uh, well-known direct-to-consumer brands. It's a terrific question. It's something we
1: think about. I mean, we are we are different from the get-go and and the reason is is because we built our business model without investors so shareholder return was never part of our founding objective and i don't know how many companies that have taken the, you know the companies that you you've mentioned right they've all risen spectacularly and frankly failed spectacularly which is a surprise to like you know everyone with two <laughs> companies right like like i i think that um and, and that's not to say that most of the, the product, investors, by the way, it was probably a surprise, <laughs> but it's like, you know, but, but here's what happened. Like fundamentally, it was a great, they did a great job at growing valuation and value. Right. Yeah. So a company that makes $400 million in revenue and loses $35 million. Like, so you're telling me if you sat on the couch and did nothing, you'd be $35 million ahead. Right. Like, so so when one of your objectives becomes, okay, we're going to do this and this and this, and then we're going to raise this, and then we're going to do this, this, and this, and then we're going to raise that, right? Like, that's just a very different way of thinking. And I knew if we took capital outside early on, and let's be honest, I was very fortunate to be able to fund this business myself. I took all the equity out of my house. I mean, I, you know, but I believed in what we were doing. But I've done that, that, by the we, way. I'm, I mortgaged a house for business. So it's- Yeah.
0: I had um,
1: <laughs> I know. I had at one point at our at our top, I had five million dollars collateralized on my home that was worth not very much. So, um thanks to the SBA for uh, for standing, I always just believe they didn't actually want to own a sheets company or my house, but they probably did. Anyhow, getting back to it, like we were able to stay true to a vision, and I've always believed and I continue to believe that raising money is not a good thing for a business. like, It is not a badge of honor. Your valuation of what you raised shouldn't get high fives. It should probably be an indication that either you have this idea with this incredible trajectory, right? And and that happens in the tech space. Um, Does it happen in retail? You know, but like, but what raising capital consistently means is that your business can't provide the cash flow you need to drive your growth. And I have, maybe it's because I'm old, right? My dad used to tell me there's two kinds of businesses in the world, the ones that make money and the ones that don't. And, and so we have been focused on profitability and staying over our skis, because I think sustainability is, and you mentioned this a little bit in your intro, so thanks for totally stealing my thunder, but um, <laughs> I do bad. think sustainability, right, is like, it has a much broader view than just eco-consciousness, right, or, or human consciousness. And so I felt that if we're going out, think about it this way, right, we now have 25,000 cotton farmers, whose livelihoods are solely dependent on bull and branch, which means they're probably living above the living wage for some of the first times in their, their lives. Mm-hmm. I have a responsibility for this business to continue to exist and continue to source because I don't want those people going backwards on my watch because I overextended myself from a marketing standpoint mm-hmm. without having the business to back it up because I'm like doing funky VC math. I mean, you and I both know you can make Excel tell you anything you want it to tell you, right? Anything. And there's enough people out there that are so desperate to make money and use like pension funds to fund that, which is a whole separate conversation, that want to chase those, those ideas. They're looking for three magic beans. And every once in a while, you find them. But it shouldn't come as a surprise when you look at the S1s of a lot of these companies that go public and you say, okay, you've built a really nice brand, but this is a fundamentally bad business, mm-hmm. a really bad business. I did, I'm
0: just watching we, uh, the, the We Crashed, WeWork story on yeah. Apple, and it was like a, you could just feel this this story in that show as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, ch- changing gears for a second, uh, you know, we 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 talk started talking about building a sustainable business. Obviously, we've spent a lot of time uh, talking about the uh, kind of sustainable in terms of workforce and materials and supply chain. Um, and you just started to touch on what building a sustainable company looks like. And I want to dig into this a little bit more. Anyone who's watched our ship for a while knows I, I, I referenced this concept I, I call about a, you know, a genius in a million helpers, which is how a lot of companies I know are set up. There's some you know, wizard at the top. There's a bunch of inexpensive labor surrounding them. And then that person dies, gets to a train wreck, leaves the company or whatever. They're, they were the company or they were a huge chunk of it. Um, I right. don't get the impression... Especially, you know, reading some of the stats I talked about earlier with you, that that is is your vision for building a sustainable company. So, could you talk a little bit around how you're trying to build a company that can outlast you?
1: Yeah, I I, I think it's it's probably it's a reasonable understanding of self and and surrounding yourself with folks that give you honesty, maybe not what you want to hear, and I and I think that that honesty becomes. Honesty is like one of the most undervalued but important aspects of team building and culture. I am fortunate that my wife is brutally honest with me, right? And is my business partner here and, and is not afraid, right? To, to call me out and, and doing those sorts of things. But what I would say across the board is the sooner you as a leader understand what you're good at, and believe me, if you've built a business and and sort of thrown caution to the wind and taken all the risk, you have some sort of magical ability right you're either very lucky or very good but most likely some combination of the two Mm -hmm. but nobody's really good at everything and Mm -hmm. and like i'll use my myself as an example and i I think you probably know this about me but i'm dyslexic so Mm -hmm. i had the benefit of learning at a pretty young age that i wasn't perfect there was something about me that was different and therefore i had to accept the fact that i was never going to be very good at geometry Right. I probably mm-hmm. can't draw too well uh, or won't ever be able to draw too well. Unfortunately, I can't putt at all. Um, <laughs> although I'm actually weirdly good at mini golf, but that's like a Jersey Shore thing. So we'll keep that separate. <laughs> but, but, but if, you know, you learn these things at a young age. And, and so you don't walk into anything with sort of the Superman complex of I can yeah. do it all and nobody can do it better than me. So now, if I, so if I take out like a half a step away from that for a second, when you look at building a team and you have the right view, you, you know, as a startup, you're doing everybody's job. You know, I have a company of 150 incredible people now. At one point, I kind of did all of their jobs in an incredibly poor way. And, and so if you look to bring in helpers to help you do that job is a very different thing than saying, we need to get better at this we need to get better at this and better than what I'm able to do. Or then, you know, as you start building a team saying, okay, we need this now set of experiences because our challenges here, here, and here are different than our challenges up here. And so I think that sense of honesty and where we are, and it's something I really ask for for all of my team is you be honest with your skill set because my job as, as the founder at this point is to move roadblocks, but to also give everybody you know everybody that works in my company they go work for louis vuitton they can go work for for these really big companies that that have you know this long trajectory and and very stable but when they come and take a step into bull and branch they want the opportunity to succeed want the opportunity to fail and most importantly they want the the opportunity to learn and be be challenged right and so i have to bring people in but i have to say look you're going to get to points where you may not have the skills you need you may not have all of this and you've got to be vulnerable enough with the organization to know that we're going to support you in that because we're investing in you as the person, just like you're investing in us as the company. And giving us, the one asset you never get more of, which is time. And so we've had plenty of people that have decided, for one reason or another, even to move on, right? Or, or you know, um, many people that have said, you know, what I'd really benefit from more senior leadership in this space. Mm-hmm. I think it's some of the bravest things people can do. And, and when you have a junior person that takes a step back and says. Mm-hmm. I think I need a little bit more guidance in this area or that area that's somebody you will bet heavy on the rest of your life mm-hmm. because there's a sense of honesty and understanding that you realize like you can do it so when you when you watch like we crashed and you watch some of these things where companies become proxies for founders like you know their own sort of personal PR mission and story and there's so many more companies than you realize out there that do that it does make you shake your head because you you say, Gosh, you had such a brilliant idea that you got out of the gates and you had the guts to go do it, and your own ego got in the way. And mm-hmm. so Bolin Branch would be just don't tell my investors this, but Bolin Branch would be fine without me. Mm-hmm. I
0: think that there's something that a founder brings to the table and I I, I would actually argue differently. I think I think your investors want to know that. You, you know what I mean? Like oh, that's sure. a good that's sure. a good company. They would get rid of me before Missy. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, so now you brought Missy. Up, that reminds me of a question I, I wanted to ask you. So, excluding your wife, who clearly has been yeah. giving you great sage like guidance, uh, even jumping down these crazy adventures with you, who who do you think gives you the best the best advice out there? Where do you turn to for great advice, excluding, excluding Missy? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I can't even
1: put my finger on one person. I think anybody that knows me knows that I am I am probably one of the greatest advice seekers there, there is out there. That's because I can thing, be really yeah. transparent with the challenges we face. So uh, I'll give you an example a friend of mine who's a founder of another company, Tom Patterson, he's the founder of Tommy John, talking to him yesterday about a specific challenge that that I was looking at just relative to the market and the economy and the customer pullback and what's he seeing and how's he thinking about it strategically. How's he keeping his team motivated and engaged? You know, how do we look at those sorts of things? Look, entrepreneurship is a team sport, full stop. It really is. And entrepreneurs have to, you know, there's the like old book that says leadership is lonely, and I I agree to that to a certain extent, but I think there's times where if you're willing to let your guard down, there is so much good information, and you can benefit from other people's rearview mirrors to such an extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, people ask me, we never had to raise money; we raised a lot of money from a private equity to really, you know, do two things. The small investors we had early, I wanted to give them a payday, uh, which was nice uh, for them, and and so now I only have one partner in El Catterton, and and they're amazing, but. You know, when I met Nick and Avic, who are the two partners um, that sit on our board now as part of Catterton, I recognized really early they have a rear view mirror that I've never had access to. They've seen so much, they have so much perspective. And when you sit in your echo chamber, you know, as a startup and you don't have a board and you don't have that sort of push, that, that's another case of like I, you know, I go to them all the time and I'm not afraid to be to be vulnerable to say, hey guys, this isn't working that well. And I, you know, in some cases, here's how I think I'm gonna solve it. Other cases, it's like, can you help me think about how to solve mm-hmm. this or, 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 you know, just tell me what to do? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, and you have to be vulnerable and open to, to knowing that you don't know everything. And that means none of us are irreplaceable in any business. Uh, everybody can be replaced. It's a pain in the neck to do so. And I hope I'm not replaced because I love what I do.
0: Yeah. Hey, <laughs> on a side note, by the way, El Catterton an amazing investor, so I, I didn't realize that they would uh, they were your kind of your your only partner at this point. So well, well done there. Um, you used a, a word twice in the last two minutes uh, where you talked about looking in the rearview mirror. I have to ask this or the show wouldn't be called Oh Ship. Uh, can you think of a time in the last however long, whether it's just your adjusted know, Bull and Birch or your entire entrepreneurial career, uh, where you've had a moment where things kind of went wrong. And, uh, you know, whether it's sort makes for a funny story now, or is uh, you know a great learning lesson that you'd be willing to, to share, no pressure. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I, I mean, how long do you have?
1: Uh, you know, uh, let me give you a couple really good ones. So in our first year in business, where we did about a million seven in revenue, we accidentally added one too many zeros on a PO and ordered a million dollars worth of cardboard boxes, which was awesome. Uh, to That that was one of the times I went back to the bank. I'm like, I need a little more cash, but the good news is I don't need boxes for the next 11 years. So <laughs> that was great. The, this is another
0: one. You'll appreciate this. So again, you know where I come. I'm just from, visualizing, right? by the way, like, like you know, half a dozen 18 wheelers kind of pulling up to the building and you guys go, what are we going to do with all this?
1: Stuff? Oh, wait, this is a great one. You're going to, you're going to appreciate this. So when we first launched and you've gotten our product, so you know that we we're really thoughtful about our packaging. Yeah. It's beautiful. The package is gorgeous. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and so Missy designed this incredibly beautiful box. And again, you also know my background. So this is 2014. This is when we launched. Okay. Yeah, we're, um, we're, you know I mean, my you're, background. You're, you're, right? you're in basically maybe a year and a half in. I'm, I'm like, months. uh, No, I'm pre-launch at this point. This is for our first PO. And again, my experience is like line marketing manager at a CPG company, and then I made video games for a while, which is exactly (laughs) why it's a little bit bewildering that I'm in this spot right now. But so we've designed this box. It's great. We had our first PO of Sheets show up, which was probably, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of our own capital worth of, of Sheets. So it was a pretty big order. And it showed up in like a third of a container and gets to our warehouse. We get a call from the port. Your boxes are in. Oh, great. We have 18 containers of boxes. 18 containers of boxes. We didn't realize that you should actually make the boxes so they ship flat. So we basically shipped 18 containers worth of air because it never occurred to Missy and I, and we didn't know anything about making packaging, that you might not want to have your boxes formed in Vietnam. You should you should have them with little sticky tabs and formed. In, in the, and it wasn't until that next year missy got me like a shirt from vineyard vines at the mall and the gift box they gave her like came flat with sticky tabs she's like oh <laughs> so i mean look, I, mean, I can't even imagine how much money that cost you guys that's painful you know it was it was a fair amount but look like <laughs> fortunately you know look the difference sometimes between companies that succeed and fails it's how catastrophic their their mistakes are um hmm. but i make mistakes every single day and I rely on having a team that's strong enough to call me on it. And it's even if I just say the wrong thing or I, I make the wrong assumptions, some of those things can be even more damaging than when you, you know, make something, make a, make a mistake that has a, a financial impact, because at the end of the day, you can recover from any financial impacts if you have a strong culture. And as a leader, you know, there are times where you forsake or, or don't think about parts of your culture or or what one decision might have as an implication to the other. And so, you know, those are mistakes that, that I worry about more. And, 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 and fortunately, I've got some good people to keep me in line.
0: I think that is an exceptionally great final bit of advice to de- end today's episode on, Scott. I really, really, really enjoyed uh, this show. I hope our audience enjoyed it as much as, as <laughs> I did. You know, Whether you're tuning in on YouTube or Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, or you're listening on any of our audio podcasts across all major platforms, Spotify and Apple and uh, you know, any, any, any Google podcasts, wherever you're listening, wherever you're watching, thank you, thank you, thank you for subscribing and tuning in. Uh, the best thing that you can do to support this show is give us a like, share, or subscribe. Uh, this is something we just do for uh, you know passion and love. It's such a great big honor to be able to bring on incredible entrepreneurs like Scott Tannen every week, um, and I hope you enjoy it. And so thank you again for sticking around. Uh, Scott, um, you know, just final kind of final thoughts from you. Is there any any uh, you know other than bowlingbranch.com, dot com? Obviously, if they want to see uh, your main company. But if there's any is there any place that people want to follow you personally or any other um, shout outs that you want to give
1: for people to take a look at? Sure. I mean, you you can always find me on LinkedIn. Reach out, especially if you have questions or, or you know. I tend to post. Some sometimes hot takes that are so hot, I delete them quickly. Uh, so you know, but uh, but no, Twitter and, and LinkedIn is always great, and you know, certainly if if uh, if we can be any any help to you at Bowling Branch, we'd we'd love to to earn your business. But most importantly, Freddie, just awesome to catch up, and and, yeah, and I'm, I'm glad we saved the catch up for live on air because it was it was good times. But um, thanks thanks to you, and thanks for you know everybody with all the great questions and comments. It's, it makes me feel great.
0: Amazing. Thank you again. And uh, to the audience, thank you so much for tuning in today. We'll see you next week on OShip. ship
1: The O-Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sails for The O-Ship Show.